The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. All right, so I hope you guys are energized a little bit, got a little warmed up during worship. I was thinking about earlier, I mean, we might need to do some jumping jacks or something like that. It's a little cool even for a Philly guy in here. Uh, so we are continuing our study in 1 John uh, today. If you want to turn there, 1 John chapter 2, we're talking about uh, the concept or the question, what do I love? And uh, start with a little story just for me. Uh, growing up uh, as a kid, uh, I had many opportuni- opportunities to serve in various ways in the church my early adolescence, there were a number of men who invested time and offered uh, mentorship in my life. At the time, I kind of saw it as random, but now looking back as a father, I kind of see strategically how my dad uh, kind of got some different men around me to point me in the right direction versus him being the pastor always kind of having to get on me and and point me in the, the way of truth. And so there were different men in my life throughout the years that kind of helped with that and encouraged me. This particular uh, man that was kind of assigned to me was one who uh, I kind of partnered with when it came with uh, our bus ministry. We had this bus ministry in our church growing up, and we would uh, have this um, bus that would go to different little city kind of close to where I grew up and pick up kids and bring them to church. And we would do this visitation time on Saturdays. I don't know if you guys grew up in that world where you go visit people and see how they're doing. And and, uh, today, nowadays, it's not as prevalent. But back then, it was like, all right, you get into people's homes, you knock on their doors, see how they're doing. And so sometimes we'd go check on maybe some kids that were missing for a week or two. And this is when I was like 10, 11, 12, 13 years old when I was doing most of this work in middle school. We would knock on doors, you know, we'd talk on doorsteps. Sometimes we'd be invited in uh, just with the TV in the background, just talking to people uh, about the gospel, about Jesus and and things like that. And we kind of used that opportunity when we bring kids to, to get into other people's lives and see how they were doing. You know, I'd like to say I was super spiritual in this moment in middle school and say, man, I really look forward to those times of visitation where we drive around and knock on strangers' doors. But uh, I'm not going to pretend that I was that spiritual. Really, I was looking forward to riding in this mentor's Jeep learning how to drive standard because he'd take me in his parking lot, learn, learn how to drive stick shift, and, um, and then he'd treat us to uh, a cheesesteak or pizza afterwards. So that was really my main motivation. I'm not going to over-spiritualize this moment at all, but my experiences and memories of this time have really shaped me in a positive way over the years. So even though I wasn't really focused on the right thing at that time, it really left a lasting impression on me. However, there's one crucial lesson I was taught by this particular mentor a few years after he moved away and didn't go to our church anymore, moved across the river to New Jersey. See, my dad got a call at our house, you know, no cell phones back then, of course, and so he gets the call, and I could see his face was kind of disturbed and distraught, and, and after he gets off the phone, he, he goes on to tell us as a family that this man who was a faithful servant, this, this ministry leader, this, this guy that I looked up to, was arrested 
And he was arrested for burglarizing homes. And so I'm just thinking to myself, as, as I think about this men's tour, you know, this story of him facing over 20 years in jail, obviously this news was both difficult and confusing for me at the time. How can a man who seems so absolutely on fire for God turn into a man committing armed robbery on a regular basis? I don't know all the answers, and I still don't. I, I do know, though, that his downfall continues to teach me, and it definitely has something to do with this passage we're going to look at today, because it's something that, obviously, in his life was this downward progression of sin that led to him basically spending over 20 years in jail. So last week, we began our That You May Believe series in the books of First, Second, Third John, Notice the theme in 1 John 5, 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Dave introduced this series uh, with some great insights into how we know we are eternally secure in Jesus, a powerful story from his childhood as well. He highlighted the fact that throughout this book we encounter various tests to know that we are in the faith. And he highlighted the test of obedience last week in the chapter one and the first part of chapter two. And today, we're gonna to look at the test of love found in two commands in these verses in 1 John 2, 7 to 17. Before we get into the scripture, I do want us to remember that this is John speaking and writing. And this John is an eyewitness. This isn't just somebody who's talking about what happened like sometimes I imagine myself, like when I talk about, think about 9-11, I think about my own experiences and even going on a mission trip a few months after and, and being at the towers a few weeks before and I can talk about stories about my experience, but my experience and my account really is nothing compared to my buddy Rick who's a firefighter and has been on the force for over 20 years now and at that time was a few months into his uh, proby year and where he was just on the force as a rookie. And when he's talking about 9-11, being in the rubble looking for survivors, it's a little different story of 9-11, right? Than the one I could share or maybe you could share. And it's the same type of idea here. When we're hearing John speak, when we're hearing him write, this isn't somebody removed from Jesus, like decades later, even centuries later, this is a man who spent time with Jesus. This is a man who was called the one who Jesus loved. And so we can see this is personal, and so he gives these commands here. This first command we can look at in verse seven is a command to love. Look at verse seven and eight. Beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So he calls them first, beloved. I think we can focus on that for a second, that these, this is a caring address, a loving address. These are people he knows and he cares about it, and he wants them to know this information. It's kind of an interesting question we can ask. How can this commandment be old and new? It's like, John, uh, can you make up your mind here? You're kind of confusing us. How can this commandment be both? Things can't be old and new at the same time, can they? 
But it's old because it's grounded in the character of Jesus, and Jesus has always been, always is, and always will be. So it's grounded in his character, so it's from the beginning of time. But it's new because it can sprout up in every new believer. So as those believe who were believing in Jesus along the way, even as John was writing, it's a new thing too. It's a new progress and the church continues to grow so it's both old and new. Seems like this passage of scripture pops up every time I'm up here on this stage but it's just always fitting to read John 13, 34, and 35. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Well, a good test that you're in the faith is that you have love for others. Doesn't mean you will love people all the time and that your actions will show it. Sometimes, you know, we mess up and we, we kind of act in an unloving way. But as Dave said last week, is it, is it time where we just continue to live in that unloving character? and show that we don't know God, or is it times where we confess and we reconcile when we bring things back together and we show that we are loving people? Then he gets into this statement that he says, darkness is passing away. And we take that statement then, they could question as a reader to say, what are you talking about, John? And us today in 2023 can ask that same question, hold on, John. How is darkness passing away? Doesn't look like it from my perspective. It seems like darkness is growing. Well, the reality is I think it just depends on our perspective. It depends on what we choose to focus on. It depends on what comes across our screens, right? It's all negative, right? The news is definitely negative. A lot of stories we hear are negative, but If we really look around us and get outside of ourselves and maybe in our own tendencies, we can actually see that the light is growing. There's a man, a doctor, Daniel Merritt, who did some research on one particular story when it comes to the darkness passing away. And it was a story of research he did on the philosopher, the French philosopher Voltaire. And last week, uh, the speaker at Connect Weekend shared this. It was so fitting to this passage that I stole it for today as well. So Voltaire is this philosopher in the 1700s, just adamantly opposed to anything to do with the gospel, specifically God's word. And he made it his life mission to make the Bible something that was passing away and that nobody would read anymore. This quote is from Voltaire himself. He says, the subject is now exhausted. The cause is decided for those who are willing to avail themselves of their reason and their lights, and people will no more read this Bible. That was his goal. And he went about it in, in a creative, you know, wise way. I mean, he's a smart guy, just intelligent, and drove a lot of people to believe what he had to say. But Dr. Merritt goes on to say, from such an arrogant declaration, it is clear Voltaire delusionally believed he had struck a death blow to the Bible's believability, and the sun was setting on the book's influence. And in time, the Bible will become irrelevant. However, instead of the Bible becoming irrelevant and no longer believed, the inspired word begins to increase in circulation. 
Voltaire's former house, only 58 years after his death, being used as a storehouse to house Bibles and gospel tracts and printing presses he once employed to print his anti-Christian sentiments were being used to print Bibles. That's not just back in the 1700s. Things like that happen present day. And we see things like that all the time, all around the world. It might not be in your neighborhood, on your street, but if you look in communist China, you look in Russia, you look in Ukraine, you look in Africa, you look in the Middle East, you look all over the world, and darkness is passing away because the light, the light is shining. The light is shining bright. But how is darkness passing away? It's because of the work of Jesus. 1 John 3, 8 says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Just as we looked at last week, we can see that we can understand this test of obedience is, okay, do I make a practice of sinning? Is it my regular habit of doing this thing? And there's never correction, there's never spirit work in us to really redirect us. Then there's a problem. But here we see, we we can see that it's this practice See, the devil has been sinning from the beginning, but the reason of the Son of God appeared is to destroy those works. So here the true light, he says, is already shining. See, as we observed in our Advent series a little while ago, John makes this powerful statement in John 1.9, the Gospel of John. He says, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. This is the true light. And he has the opportunity to light up the darkest heart, the most evil heart, And he can explode it with this light and transform lives. And some of you can share testimony after testimony of the darkness being destroyed and the light lighting your path. So as we move into 9, verses 9 through 11, we see John utilizes an element of contrast to describe this command to love. He masterfully intertwines two contrasts here. Let's look at them in verse 9. Whoever he says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So there's two contrasts given here. Contrast number one is love versus hatred. So we see that the result of abiding in the light is love. The result of living a blinded life is hatred. So we allow the things of the world to blind us, and we're going to look at that a little bit later, is basically we get blinded by the things of the world, and it results in a hatred for humanity and a hatred for even specific people in our lives. But if we abide in the light then we see this love poured out, this love that is supernatural, not a love that is forced, not a love that is like, well, I have to love you because you're my blood, right? Because you're here and God said it. But instead, it's this overflowing love of Jesus. The second contrast is light versus darkness, a similar contrast that he gives here. See, light, it gives direction. Darkness leaves you guessing, The true light causes stability. The darkness of the devil leads to instability. Light leads to love. And darkness 
leads to hatred. So what about you in this contrast? Looking at your own life, maybe considering even what you've been about even just the past week. What does it look like? Are you living a life of direction? That you have purpose? Maybe you don't know all the answers or every path to take at every moment, but you're still abiding in the light and you have some form of direction in your life? Or is it just, oh man, I have no idea. I have no idea what's going on and where I should go and what I should do. Do you have stability in your life? Does it mean that everything's perfect and there's no rocky roads and there's no uh, you know, trips along the way and stumbles? But do you have stability or is every single thing that comes your way just knocking you over and throwing you into this darkness and throwing you into these questions? Do we focus on the light or is it our circumstances that continually just cause us instability? Do we live lives of love or are we known more for what we hate? It's very simple contrast, but it's also very convicting. See, we came to understand last week that those who are truly in Christ are not perfect by any means. We continue to sin, we continue to battle. As a matter of fact, as we abide in the true light, we're actually more and more aware of our sin, right? So we see our sin in a deeper way and we see how evil we really can be. But for true believers, awareness is not the stopping point. It's actually the beginning of living a life of regular confession to others, growing in obedience to God's commands and scriptures. You see, in my 48 years of life, Growing up almost literally in the church, no lie, almost literally growing up in that building. I've seen a lot of stuff. God's given me encounters with bold, faithful, light-following believers. And I've been able to see people that have been transformed by this light. He's also giving me situations where I saw at an early age the ruthless ravaging of lives consumed by drugs and alcohol and so many other things. And just watching my dad and my mom speak into the lives of people that are struggling in this area and with addiction. See, these occurrences are devastating and they garner lots of attention because of the emotion that comes through and and the time and energy that it takes to battle these type of particular sins. But it's interesting that there's actually more prevalent silent killer of families and relationships in the pursuit of true joy found in Jesus. This silent killer is a result of giving in to deception of the enemy. It manifests itself in so many ways it usually starts with minor compromises and concessions in our walk with Jesus. It progresses to more bold decisions of neglect and disregard of the Spirit's leading. And it ends in devastation and destruction, leaving a wake wake of regret behind. Now, some of you may be into these heavy sins that are difficult of addiction and struggle, and and this is something that a promise from from the word that you can have that light, but a lot of us, we're really battling this somewhat silent killer. And it's what we love. And it's the battle of the love for our lives and our attention and our focus. 
And it's a challenge for all of us. But sandwiched in between the two commands we're looking at today, we find this command to love actually lived out. And John takes a moment to just kind of highlight the love that's lived out and kind of shows us what it looks like right here in verse 12 to 14. He says, I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you've overcome the evil one. I write to you children because you know the father. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. So it's kind of interesting. John switches from hypothetical examples in the third person and then he goes on to make statements in the second person. It's kind of interesting. He's, he's like saying to him, them, the readers that are reading this message to them, he's saying, hey, I see you. I see that you're doing this. I see that your love is lived out. I'm encouraging you to keep it up. See, the structure of these verses is very interesting, kind of just plopped in the middle of these two commands. And it's interesting because he's using a poem or a song almost of encouragement and It made me think, man, I need to look into this a little bit. Why did John do this? Why would he interject this direct thing to little children, to fathers, to young men, to all different stages of life? Author Karen Job puts it this way. She says, the needs of remembering material in a largely oral culture necessitates such schemes, which may seem trivial or be missed altogether in our own visual text-based culture. So for John to say this and to write this, he does this in a way so that it sticks in their heads, similar to how David wrote, and he wrote his songs, and Solomon, and Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes, in different ways that helps them remember what's being said. And so John utilizes this, this message and this way of communicating for them to be able to internalize and also memorize what he's saying and to really take it in. This is a powerful way to communicate for him. And you notice, if you notice the way he's speaking, we can actually see some of what we covered in our series on core values. He says, this is all lived out in community together. These verses reveal specifically godly characteristics that we learn to regular, regularly practice when we live in true biblical community. Here are the elements. Forgiveness, you can see that here in these Verses 12 to 14, we have forgiveness, knowledge, overcoming evil, abiding in the word, and strength. When you spend time together with other believers, encouraging one another, and being in their lives on a daily basis, texting each other, and we have obviously that that privilege of being able to keep up with one another, right? in more important ways than, than were ever revealed in scripture where we can, we can have this uh, device that isn't just used for this, these distractions but instead can be one that brings community. And so we start texting each other daily and we see things like forgiveness happening. We talk with one another and, and we learn, we gain knowledge, we overcome the evil one, we, we abide in the word together and we're strengthened together as we live in community, as we learn together, as we grow and as we reject the darkness and embrace the light. 
So he, lo- he, he, he includes these stages of life, and I'm, I love that he does that. Being a, a junior high pastor, someone who's devoted over 20 years of my life to specifically students. I love that he includes this, just like Jesus included in his ministry as well, the value of kids growing in the faith, the value of adolescence being used for the sake of the gospel. As a matter of fact, there's over 60 of them uh, from Temple Bible Church that are gonna be doing their first training today at the Outback to get ready to share the gospel in Galveston. So if I could be John, I would be saying the same thing. I see it in you. I see this love growing. I see that you're abiding. I see forgiveness. I see all these things. So it's so exciting to see how he includes these different stages of life. So John is getting more direct and personal as he gets ready to hit his readers with a specific powerful command. So it's like he's talking to a bunch of people and then in this particular section he's like, hey, come on in here. I need a few of you to listen maybe a little more closely here. It's kind of like a coach in football. And a coach in football, sometimes you know he'll speak to the whole team, right? All right, you guys, you need to get out there and get after it or a coach in volleyball, whatever it is. And, and okay, I'm talking to all of you, but then all right, I, I need to meet with the captains a little bit. Let me, let me give you some insight. And, you know, being this time of year, this illustration just happened to drop in my lap. I'm not sure how it worked out. But uh, a, uh, let's see, five years ago yesterday, there was a Super Bowl and uh, there were two teams playing in it. One team that everyone, almost everyone hates, called the Patriots, uh, and then there were the Eagles. And there was a play, a particular play, and uh, it was a fourth down, and it was like fourth in like five or six yards. It's, it's one of those things where it's like you just go kick the field goal, right? You're not gonna get this in the end zone. It's, it's a goal line, but it's five or six yards away, and well, the coach calls Nick Foles over, I think we have a picture of it, actually. I didn't want to rub it in, but uh, I think, yeah. So, uh, so he calls him over and he's like, all right, I've talked to the whole team. I've given, given you all the plan, but hey, Nick, we need to talk for a second, time out. And he talks directly to him and says, you want Philly, Philly? And Philly, Philly was a play that basically was this trick play that ended up having the quarterback catch a touchdown in the end zone, which is really unheard of usually if you don't know football. Uh, And so this was his opportunity and boom, it happened and the Eagles won the Super Bowl. Uh, So it was just an amazing tie-in to what we're talking about here. Don't get distracted on the Eagles winning the Super Bowl. Uh, Let's focus on what's happening here, which was, hey, I'm talking to the whole team, but now, hey, I need to talk to you specifically. I need to address you, the quarterback. I need to address you, maybe a few of you here. And this is what John's doing. He's like, hey, get together here. A few of you, come on in. I'm about to tell you something. I'm gonna tell you something might hurt, but it's for your own good. And this is what he's about to tell him, the second command found in verse 15 to 17. Don't love the world going back to that story at the beginning of our time together, I think this is what brought my mentor down. He had a history before he came to Christ, a history that was both good and bad, you know, some struggles in his life with drinking and other things. But he came to Christ and he was transformed 
But the love for the world obviously brought him down. See, the temptation to love the world and all that it offers is timeless. Just like John, Paul speaks about not loving the world after telling his brothers and sisters to present their bodies as living sacrifices to God. He states in Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So how do we not love the world here? He gives, an, he gives a, a solution. Let our minds be renewed by the word each day. Be in the word and let it soak in and transform our lives. And when it comes to loving the world, another story kind of popped in my head as I was looking into this passage. And it's a story that goes back, I think even before we have kids, and it's a ways back. But uh, my wife and I, we would run these mission trips together at times, you know, and we'd take some students from Texas up to New York City and we'd share the gospel in the subways and on the streets and, and just all different places. And uh, at this time of year, we were... We were getting ready uh, at the time, actually, to go to Yankees game. And so we go with about 50 kids, uh, with my brother-in-law, my sister, and we're down there in the subway. And it's quite the circus trying to get 50 kids on a crowded subway train. And so we're heading down, and uh, we get in there, and it seemed a little crowded, but not too bad. And so we're on the subway, and but every stop heading to the Yankees game, what happens? It gets more crowded, right? And, and not only was it crowded because the Yankees were playing and the game was going on and he was starting pretty soon, but it was also rush hour. So those two things combined, uh, combined to have people just continually every stop, boom, more people getting on, boom, more people getting on. And uh, my wife <clears throat> is somebody who is uh, extremely claustrophobic when it comes to people and their messiness and their smells and lots of other things that happen when you get into a subway that's packed. And so as a good husband, I was literally trying my best to form a barrier. I had my arms on those metal poles and she was here and I was trying to like give her this window of opportunity to breathe and every stop got worse and people were pressing in on my arms and pressing in to the point that she said to me, I know we got all these kids here but we have other leaders. If one more person gets on this train at the next stop, we gotta get off. And so you know what happened? More than one person got on at that next stop and we got off and we said, hey, we'll see you at the stadium. And we just walked up in a random street and got a taxi and made our way to the stadium. Now, how does this tie in to what we're talking about to not love the world? Well, it made me think of that because when we, can, when we start out uh, with different things, different temptations to love the world, it doesn't start with a flood of things, Right? It starts with little things, small things. And we embrace these things, and they come into our lives, and it's not that big of a deal. But as we allow other things and concessions in our relationship with God, and we allow the world to come in in different ways, it's just like that crowded subway car that continues to push us out. And we get squeezed. And instead of dealing with that and removing the crowd and removing these things that are coming into our lives, the world and the sin that it brings and the distraction that it brings and, and all the different things that we're into, we just continue to live in it and we get squished. 
We have no room, no margins for anything in our lives because the world just continues to push. Notice he says, he doesn't just like say specifically, love not the world, meaning like that there's just specific sins. He just says generically overall at first, love not the world. There are good things in the world. As you can tell, I love sports. Every time I get up here, I was trying to think of a different example than that Super Bowl one, but I couldn't. It's just what it is. I love it. But there have been many times in our life as a family where sports has pushed us to the margins where we haven't had time, haven't had the proper time as a family together, haven't had time in the word like we should. So it's not just specific um, sins like hatred he mentioned earlier, or even getting into alcoholism and things like that. What happens is it becomes sin because we let ourselves get squeezed by the things of the world and our loves begin to squeeze and we end up not being able to function as a person or as a family because we allow the margins just to be squished. So your love for God continually gets squeezed. So instead of increasing moments of continual growth in the love of God with minor setbacks along the way, you tend to have increased moments of the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life with minor breakthroughs of the love of God along the way. That's interesting. God wants us to the point where we have major breakthroughs continually and that those sins are fading away, but instead we get to love the world and what happens is it gets flipped. And once in a while we get convicted, maybe on a Sunday morning or at small group or by a song we hear. But instead of that conviction leading to real change, we just go back and we keep doing this love of the world thing. But there's no wiggle room here in this scripture. Some scriptures we can try to explain away based on context and other things. But he says it, look, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Do not love the world, the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. James takes it even further in James 4.4. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. See, the way that Satan comes at us is timeless. It's the same way Satan came at Jesus. When he went out in the wilderness for 40 days, how did he come at him? He lists it right here, actually. Verse 16, all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. The same way that he came at Jesus is the same way that he comes at us. The desires of the flesh, everything that appeals to our carnal, physical appetite, it's illustrated in Psalm 1-1. You look at Psalm 1-1 there, it says, blessed is the man who walks into the counsel of the wicked, stands in the way of sinners, sits in the seat of the scoffers. The desires of the flesh is something that's illustrated. I've done this before on the stage to illustrate this is that we are literally walking around that sin, the love of the world. We're walking around it. Should I be into this? Should I not? And we walk around it and then we get comfortable in it and then we start standing and we're like, oh, this is kind of interesting. Maybe I should get into this. Maybe I should do that. Maybe I should fill my schedule with this. And it just starts to get squished. And we sit eventually in it. We walk, we stand, and we sit, and before we know it, 
were just like that frog boiling in water that started out, and I'll just jump into these illustrations randomly, but it's like this frog, right? If you ever want to boil a frog, all you got to do is throw that frog in a pot of water. That sounds morbid. But that frog doesn't know any better when the temperature just starts to increase slowly and the frog never jumps out of the water. Don't go try this at home. But the idea is this. It starts to change slowly. The temperature starts to change and it shifts. And before you know it, it's boiled frog. And that's what happens with us. We get into the world and the world starts to come at us. We're walking around this sin. We're walking around these opportunities. We stand in it and then we just sit down and get comfortable in the desires of the flesh. Talks about the desires of the eyes, everything that appeals to the eyes, never ending demands. Genesis 3, 6, Eve dealt with this. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes, you see that. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit, ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. The desires of the eyes. And then lastly, the pride of life. Everything that appeals to our never-ending desire to be known, successful, self-sufficient, and noticed apart from God. We see this played out in the sins of the Israelites in Nehemiah 9.16. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. So Tim, you might ask, what does it mean to not love the world? Do I smash my phone with a hammer? Go and live out in the country? You know, maybe grow my own food, start making my own clothes, no offense to those that do? Do I start being a uh, a recluse and and, and just start a commune with my own family out in in the wilderness? I'm like, that sounds amazing. Is that what I do? Is that how I not love the world anymore? Just remove myself from it? I don't think that's what we're called to do. And Paul has a great answer in Romans 13, 14. He says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Put on the Lord Jesus. Sounds like a simple answer. It's not simple. The world continues to pull us. The love of the world continues to drag us. Whether it's something big or something minor, but it's something that comes in our lives and it wrecks our love for Jesus. See, the world is passing away, says in verse 17, along with its desires. As we looked at it earlier, our perspective is skewed. We see the world, its temptations, and its grip growing stronger, but John is clearly saying it's passing away. The kingdom has come. The kingdom of light continues to grow, whether we see it or not. And the world is passing away. Every day we approach an amazing, amazing experience we get to have, which is to be with Jesus in the flesh, like glorified bodies forever. We have to realize this world is passing away. Only the things that are done for Christ will last. And only the things that go against loving the world are the things that will last for eternity. And he says, whoever does, the will of God abides forever. So just a final challenge as we get ready to sing. Get your eyes off of the temporary. 
Quit living for the day-to-day, fleeting, fake fulfillment this measly world has to offer. Commit your mind and heart through study and memorization of the word to live for eternity, invest in God's kingdom, the only thing that really matters. Listen, I'm not up here just throwing stones at you. Because this week, including even this morning, I had to throw stones at myself when I'm reading this passage. Because oftentimes, even as a pastor, my life doesn't reflect the fact that I don't love the world. But we're all in this together. We're all the body of Christ and we struggle together against this love for the world. Let's take a second to pray before we sing and close out. God, your word is always convicting. But it seems like today it's extra convicting because I think we all can agree that we have sinned in various ways in loving the world. Living in the darkness rather abiding than abiding in the light. Or maybe some of us in this room maybe have never embraced the light. We just continue to live in darkness. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here that is experiencing that, that they will know that they can come to you and trust you as their Savior right now to reject the darkness and embrace the Son as the Savior. Lord, for us that know you, that maybe are convicted about our love for the world, that our lives have become squished so much by the world that we don't have freedom to serve you. We don't have freedom to love others. We're just obsessed with our schedule and packing more into it. Lord, I pray that we will acknowledge that as sin. And that we will confess to you and allow your light to fill our lives as we abide in you more and more each day as we memorize scripture, as we study your word and see it for what it is. That we'll become people, we'll become families, we'll become small groups, we'll become a church who lives this out in a way that that love is undeniable. That when the world looks at us and says, what do we love? that it will be clear through our actions there's no argument that we love you, that we love your word, and that we love your people. Lord, fill us with your spirit. Allow us to be convicted and changed today. In your name we pray, amen.